Has something gone awry on American university campuses? Anthony Cronman will be here to talk about his new book, The Assault on American Excellence. Did you know Rudyard Kipling wrote The Jungle Book while living in Brattleboro, Vermont? Christopher Benfey will be here to talk about his new book on Kipling in America, If. Plus, our critics will talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Anthony Cronman joins us now from Block Island. He is the author, most recently, of The Assault on American Excellence, a former dean at the Yale Law School and currently a professor of law at Yale Law School. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start with your title, because it's very strongly worded. What is this assault you refer to? The book was motivated by my desire to try and understand the common source of all of the troubles that are roiling our campuses today. Yale, of course, in particular, but uh, campuses across the country. And I trace them back to the increasing politicization of academic life. Our colleges and universities, very broadly speaking, are devoted to the cultivation and the transmission of excellence in a very wide range of disciplines and fields, and above all, to the search for truth. The truth is not a democratic value. We don't decide what the truth is in mathematics or philosophy or history by asking for a show of hands. In this respect, our colleges and universities are not democratic institutions. Our values as a nation, as a political people, are most decidedly democratic and egalitarian. That's wonderful, admirable. Three cheers for that. But when the egalitarian and democratic values that have an entirely proper place in the political sphere seep into the academy, or maybe I should say are imported wholesale into the academy, They compromise and undermine the objective standards that the search for truth assumes, and they question and compromise the very idea of excellence itself as a value to be pursued. That is the assault on American excellence, to which the title of the book refers. So when you say the politicization of campus life, I'm assuming you're differentiating between what's happening now and what has always happened on campus, or at least, you know, most notably since the 60s at Berkeley, in which students are always political. But is the difference now that the campus life, the professors, the students, the sort of very body of the university itself is under attack for political reasons? Yes, that's exactly right. And I know this from firsthand experience. I was a student in the 1960s. I was a student activist. I ran the SDS chapter at Williams College. So I've had some experience with student activism myself. In the 1960s, student activists were principally concerned with issues off campus. In my case, with the civil rights movement and the war in Vietnam, which were the two focal issues that student activists of my generation were preoccupied with, our objectives were extracurricular. They had to do with the reform of institutions and practices that lay beyond the academy. Student activism today is internal 
internally directed. Mm-hmm. It's concerned principally with the, uh, with the inside culture of our colleges and universities them, themselves. I never doubted uh, when I was a student activist in the 1960s that it was t- terrifically important uh, to preserve the intellectual integrity of the school environment in which I was studying and working and mounting, helping to mount my various activist campaigns, never occurred to me to think that that should be radically dismantled or changed. Student activists today have their target set on exactly that. And I think that's a big mistake. When I went to school in the early 1990s, not quite the 60s, the dominant thing on campus, and it was relatively new, and I I thought at the time that it originated at my school, was political correctness. And there was a comic strip with a character called PC Man, but it was sort of instantly dominant. And at the time, in the 90s, people thought, oh, wow, you know, this is all-consuming. It sounds like you're saying things have gotten much worse even since then. Dramatically worse. Dramatically worse. What we refer to in a, in a general way as the, the spirit or the mood or the culture of political correctness has settled on our colleges and universities like a suffocating fog. It has had and it continues to have a stifling effect on the culture of free expression and free exchange and forces a conformity in thinking and assaults at the deepest level the spirit of independent-mindedness, which ought to be, which is, in my view, the very lifeblood of college and university life. One of the main points I make in my book is that this is bad not just for our schools themselves, for higher education, but it's bad for the country. Mm-hmm. A democracy like ours, wonderful as it is, has a tendency to encourage what Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, America's shrewdest observer, described as the tyranny of majority opinion, the tendency to think like others, to speak like others in order to save yourself the, the trouble and awkwardness of thinking for yourself. In a democratic environment like that, we desperately need, when I say we, I mean the American people, desperately need every little bit of independent-mindedness that we can summon. To the extent that our colleges and universities traditionally encouraged, promoted, nourished a spirit of independent-mindedness, they served a larger democratic purpose by producing young people who would go out into the world and into public life with the powers of judgment and reflection and independence of view that the country needs. To the extent they don't do that or do it to a lesser degree than they once did, as I say, that's bad for the schools themselves, but it's bad for the country at large. I want to talk about the implications for the schools and also the difference in the way schools are handling these problems. But first, let's talk just a little bit about the problems, because I think I know the ones that you're referring to. You certainly know them. Not all our listeners know about some of the recent 
scandals and issues at Yale, specifically Halloween costume, brouhaha, the changing of the name of Calhoun College, dropping the term master within the context of the university. Tell us a little bit about some of these, and, and maybe these aren't even the worst things. What what do you consider to be the problems? Okay, the problems or, or issues that I discuss in the book fall into three broad categories. You've mentioned two of them, and I'll mention a third in just a moment. One has to do with the norms of speech on campus. And of course, the most celebrated and notorious examples of this are cases in which controversial speakers have been denied a platform on on campus or shouted down by students or hounded off the, the podium. But beyond that, there has been a general campaign to reform language and cleanse it of inappropriate and incorrect terminologies, a kind of Orwellian campaign to make our, our words conform to the most progressive and egalitarian political beliefs. I believe very strongly in a robust, wide-open culture of free expression on campus. But in the book, I make a point of distinguishing free speech on campus from the kind of free speech that takes place or we imagine taking place at Speaker's Corner in a public park where citizens get up and express their views and speak their mind. On campus, freedom of speech is not just for the sake of exchanging views. It is for the sake of engaging together in the shared pursuit of truth in what I call a conversation. And a conversation is a higher and more demanding ideal than anything that happens down the street in the park at Speaker's Corner. So freedom of expression, that's one issue that I focus on in the book. And there have been challenges to free campus speech at Yale and uh, my alma mater, Williams College, and many other places. I want to just jump in on that first one before you go on to the other two, because I think a lot of this sounds familiar to to people who read the news and, and sort of follow campus life a bit. But what I understand is that it also enters into the classroom and has effects on how students learn and the way in which they are being taught to think. So one example from my world, from the world of books, is I've talked to professors who teach personal essays, for example, and and personal writing. And they say that many of their students have objected to reading certain essays because they feel triggered or because the essays make them feel uncomfortable and that they feel stymied in what they can teach because the whole idea of an essay is to force someone out of their normal way of thinking and to to prod them to actually to make them feel uncomfortable in order to get them to think. And I'm curious if you see that broadly in the classroom at Yale and and in other universities. I, I think there are two related phenomena that one sees in the classroom that I see in my classroom from time to time, though my students know that I discourage it, and so perhaps I see a little bit less of it than, than some others do. One is what you've just described, uh, students who say that text, this figure, that view, it's just too upsetting to me e- even to be considered as a, as a possible alternative. It is an insult and a wound even to put it on the table, and I insist that for the sake of protecting my feelings, 
my self-respect, my dignity, that you put that idea off the table altogether. That's terrible. It undermines the very purpose of classroom conversation, which is in a charitable and warm and open-minded spirit to open people's minds, to put them in touch with disagreeable ideas that abrade, that rub against them in the wrong way, and which they may very well reject on reflection, but which it is essential for them to consider and contemplate and form a judgment about if they're going to grow as human beings. That's one thing. Another very closely related is this. The the student who says, well, uh, we're talking about uh, this book or this author or this particular historical experience, and I will tell you from my own experience, it doesn't look at all like that. And to treat their feelings, their experience, their own personal view of the matter as a trump card that they are justified in playing in any discussion or debate about the work in question, as if their feelings took precedent over the argument in the work, the truth or untruth of the position being advanced. There is a certain and increasing tendency to rely on feeling and personal experience as the decisive factor in determining whether a position is worthy of being considered or not. So in both those ways, feelings today have acquired a preeminence vis-a-vis logic, reason, considered debate, which defeats the whole purpose of the intellectual conversation the classroom is supposed to be. Well, then I have to jump ahead to this question of how are universities handling this? How are professors handling this? Because when I was in school, I guess, one, we just assumed that nobody cared about our feelings, so we didn't even bother articulating them. But the response, I think, if we had, would have been, well, that's very nice or that's too bad for you. However, here is the lecture that we're going to give or this is the conversation that we're having and the issues that we're discussing. Has the position of professors and universities changed? Are they acceding to this point of view or capitulating to it or are they accommodating it? What are institutions doing? Let me tell you first what I think the right response to a student who says that just doesn't fit my feelings. It doesn't comport with my experience of life. Let me tell you what I think the right response is, and then I'll answer your question about how professors tend in general uh, to respond these days. If a student says something of that kind in a class that I'm teaching, my reaction is to say, well, okay, elaborate. Please explain to the, the rest of us what it is you have in mind, what in your experience doesn't fit with the argument or the text that we're considering. Explain it. And then I'd like you to consider it and do the best job you can of defending it. And I may put a question to you. Others may put a question to you. But let's see where it goes. And if the student is adamant and says, you know, this really matters to me, I I really, my feelings are so strong, my, my reaction will be to say, I take that as a measure of the, of the passion with which you hold the view you do. And that matters. I register that and I care about it. But it's not enough just to say you passionately feel this way. You've got to put your feelings into words that the rest of us can understand 
and evaluate. And maybe we'll agree with you, maybe not, but you need to join with us in the advancement of a shared conversation. Many teachers today, I think, accept the statement of feeling as itself a standard or measure of truth to which they increasingly just defer. And this happens not only in classroom exchanges, but in the design of curricular programs, too. Things are added, things are taken off the reading list because the teacher anticipates that the students will feel very strongly about having certain works on and certain works off the reading list. So there is an increasing tendency to defer to feeling, to personal experience, to the the particular background of, of life from which the student comes. And that, I think, is a mistake. Of course, it's perfectly appropriate and, and indeed, I think, salutary to acknowledge that a student is bringing something distinctive, special to the table. But the table is a common table. It's set for everyone in the room. And the student must be gently and kindly but persistently invited to come into a common conversation with the others around the table for the sake of discovering the truth of the matter. The truth is not a personal ideal. It isn't something that any of us have a, have a, have a lock on. It, it, it isn't something that we can define according to our personal life experience and, uh, and, and feelings. It's the common possession of us all, and we have to struggle together to figure out what it is. But what I also hear from professors is even if they don't agree necessarily with the idea, if they're not deferring because they agree with the idea that feelings should take precedent over everything in terms of of how they, they guide the classroom conversation and the curriculum, they defer to it out of fear sometimes, fear that the professor will get in trouble, fear that there might be some repercussion from the administration or fear that this will end up in their student reviews um, and that will somehow, you know, come back to haunt them or something else, something worse. That's a real phenomenon. I, I think more generally, many professors just don't want to make trouble for themselves. They may be worried about uh, being sanctioned or reprimanded or getting low marks on their student reviews. But I think, more generally, most professors just want to avoid making a lot of unnecessary trouble for themselves. They, they want to get back to their, uh, to their books, to their offices, mm-hmm. to their reading and their writing. And so they kind of keep a low profile. Right, keeping their heads down. And mixing metaphors, and they trim their sails to avoid stormy weather. And that is unfortunate because it means that the culture that we've been talking about takes deeper root and spreads more broadly and has fewer and fewer opponents or resistors on the campus, among the faculty, and of course among the students too who are prepared to push back against it. Because of course, if teachers are fearful, anxious, or just want to avoid trouble, think about the students. Mm-hmm. They're not in the position of any authority at all. And why would they stick their necks out and risk 
angering or alienating their classmates and putting themselves in a position of awkwardness or even jeopardy within the student body. So there's a lot of fearfulness out there, a lot of intimidation and anxiety. And I wrote this book in part to give a voice to those of us who love teaching and learning Mm -hmm. and the culture of higher education and the ideals of excellence and truth, but who are increasingly timid or just downright afraid about speaking up on behalf of these older values. You wrote this book after 40 years at Yale. You've been there since 1978. 20 of those years were as the dean of the law school. You are a tenured professor probably don't have too much to lose. Do you think you could have written this book as a 35-year-old assistant professor hoping for tenure? (laughs) I I really have no idea. I've been asked that. I happily acknowledge that I'm in a position of relatively greater protection than my junior colleagues and others on the faculty who may not feel they have the freedom to speak as I have in the book. And I I, I acknowledge that, but, you know, gosh, if if that's true, then it's doubly my responsibility as a senior tenured member of the faculty with the freedom to speak, to speak up. I have a duty to do that. I'm, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher all my adult life. And this book is, as I conceived it when I wrote it, and as I hope it will be received, just an an extension of the teaching that I've been doing at Yale all these long years. I'm trying to be as responsible in writing this book as I've tried to be in the classroom over those four decades. There's a lot more in this book, and I don't have time to ask you about it all, but I do want to ask one last question. The Assault on American Excellence, your new book, it comes out on August 20th. School at Yale starts the following week. Are you thinking about how this is going to be received on campus? I'm assuming some people, certainly professors, colleagues, your own bosses have read this already. I'm assuming so, and uh I'm I'm confident there will be a reaction of some kind. I I know that there will be some, perhaps many, among my colleagues on the faculty and certainly among the students who will not receive it in a warm and enthusiastic way. I think there are some who will. I'm confident of that, too. The one thing that I hope and, and that I'm quite sure will happen, it will start a conversation on campus. I know that because I've already received a couple of emails from student reporters for the Yale Daily News who tell me they're working on stories collecting faculty and student reactions to the book. So there will be some talk about it, maybe a lot of talk, but that's great. The worst thing that could happen is for these issues to lie buried and undiscussed. That would be a symptom, a continuing symptom of the closing down of the spirit of free inquiry, which I talk about and complain about in the book. So to the extent that I can start a conversation, however many uh, brickbats come my way, that's if, if I do that, the book will have served its purpose, the purpose I had in mind. All right. Well, here's to back-to-school season, hopefully with lots of interesting and not-too-volatile conversation. Tony, thanks so much for being here. 
Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Anthony Cronman is the former dean of Yale Law School. He's a professor at the law school now, author of several books. His new book is called The Assault on American Excellence. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Christopher Benfey joins us now. He is in Dublin, Ireland, and here to talk about his new book, If, The Untold Story of Kipling's American Years. Christopher, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks. It might be hard to find a writer more out of favor with contemporary American readers than Rudyard Kipling. What drove you to do this? And and why has he fallen out of favor? Kipling's reputation really took a nosedive already by the 1920s. The Bloomsbury writers were not thrilled by Kipling. His American reputation is a little bit different. And for me, the big retrieval process was to to find that American Kipling. Some of Kipling's greatest critics, greatest appreciators were American. And I feel that Americans saw a slightly different writer in his works. I also think that he had this gigantic presence in Gilded Age United States society. And that's my specialty. And this great magnetic force of Rudyard Kipling is just everywhere in the 1890s and after. So an unavoidable topic in the American Gilded Age. For me, that was irresistible. All right. I want to just go back to that Bloomsbury bit that you raised, because for them, was the objection more stylistic, whereas in America, it's been more political? I think a little bit of both. I think Kipling struck them as such a rah-rah figure for the British Empire at a time when Bloomsbury writers like Lytton Strachey and Virginia Woolf were feeling that there were real problems with that. Whereas in the United States, there was a kind of excitement about taking a a big new role in the world. And Kipling seemed to show the way. I mean, he literally showed the way when he when he wrote The White Man's Burden, one of the most appalling poems in the English language, what he was really doing was trying to inspire the United States to help Britain out in its wars with Germany, for example, and in in what Kipling regarded as the sort of civilizing mission of, of the Western world. Most Americans today probably think of Kipling's writing in terms of books for children, probably today, things like The Jungle Books and, and, and maybe Kim, although that is also obviously for adults. But you mentioned the dread poem, The White Man's Burden, and you named your book If after another poem. Why? I liked the idea that it was both Kipling's best-known poem and that it suggested something conditional about Kipling's relationship to the United States. He really wanted to move to the United States. He really wanted to spend his whole life in Brattleboro, Vermont. As astonishing as that is to imagine, he'd married an American woman. 
He was excited about the future of the U.S. And he was really apprenticing himself to American writers, like really diligently studying Longfellow and Mark Twain and Emerson, his idol, even Whitman. He was reading Louisa May Alcott. So the idea behind the title was a sort of what if, what if Kipling had become that great American writer? Mm-hmm. You know, he told his friends, he told his friends he was going to write the, the, the great American novel, which is kind of an astonishing thing to say. And he, he wasn't saying it in jest. He was sort of studying up for it. Well, he did write novels here, which I think is probably surprising to many listeners, but not the great American novel. What books did he write while he was living in Brattleboro? Well, the the amazing fact for me was that he wrote The Jungle Book in Brattleboro. I mean, that just, I've met hundreds of New Englanders who have no idea that Kipling wrote The Jungle Book anywhere near Boston or, or New York. But he also tried very hard to write a major American novel with Captain's Courageous. He he studied really hard what the North Atlantic fishing fleets were up to, those Winslow Homer paintings. And it's a pretty interesting novel. It is very much an American novel about sort of testing yourself against the forces of nature, a great topic in American literature in the 1890s. And everybody, everybody read it. That's what I mean by Kipling as a kind of magnetic force in the United States. He also wrote a lot of stories. He also wrote poems in the United States. I mean, another reason why if the poem is so interesting to me is that Kipling first published it in conjunction with a story about George Washington. So again, just a sense of the depth of Kipling's obsession with the United States in this sort of reciprocal relationship that he developed. You mentioned Kim, which is a book that's very closely modeled on Huckleberry Finn. The two central characters, one a young, innocent boy with a heart of gold, and one an older man who is trying to find freedom, in one case an escaped slave, and the other a Tibetan Buddhist lama. So there is a there is a great back and forth between Kipling and the United States, and that, too, I was trying to capture. When did Kipling first come to America, and where was he in his career? How well-known was he in America at the time? Completely unknown. So he first arrives in 1889, and he's traveling around the world from India, where he has begun his career as a writer. He's 22 years old. He has a local readership in northern India among railroad travelers, and he is going around the world sort of the the opposite way from most travelers to the United States. He arrives in San Francisco, and he goes east, and he's really curious about the United States. He arrives in Arizona, and he says, looks a little like Afghanistan. He arrives in Chicago, and he says, boy, all these cows in the street reminds me of Calcutta, a wonderfully vivid sense of a young, bright guy discovering America. And he tracks down his idol, Mark Twain, in Elmira, New York. And Mark Twain has no clue, mm-hmm. just thinks it's, the we- thinks it's the weirdest name he's ever seen and one of the weirdest guys, but brilliant, incredible talker. Mark Twain says after the visit that he felt Kipling knew everything and he knew nothing. That's 1889. A year later, 
Kipling is one of the most famous writers in the English-speaking world, and his career just takes off with a great agent who happens to be an American. He marries that agent's sister, another American who happens to be from Brattleboro, and they decide to take their honeymoon with a first stop in Brattleboro. They buy some land. They go to Japan. There's a bank failure. They go back to Brattleboro, and suddenly all plans change, and they settle down in Vermont, and they remain there for four years, really planning to spend the rest of their lives there. Why didn't they? So there were two problems. One was a sort of fight between Kipling and his brother-in-law, the other brother of his wife, who was a sort of drunken lout and felt that Kipling looked down on him, which he undoubtedly did. The other was a conflict between the United States and Venezuela. Gold had been discovered on the border of Venezuela. The British asserted rights to it. Venezuela asserted rights to it. And the United States decided to broker the deal. And Kipling felt, taking the side of the Venezuelan government, and Kipling felt that he was no longer welcome in the United States. I think he he overreacted, as he often did. But the fact of a personal quarrel in the family and a national government, international quarrel, made him feel that he just had to leave. His quarrel with with his brother-in-law got a lot of press attention. There was a lawsuit. He had his brother-in-law arrested for threatening him. And things got ugly in Brattleboro. So you mentioned that he met Twain. Did he end up meeting other writers, American writers that he admired? And how did he fit in with American literary life during that period? He really makes a deliberate pilgrimage to meet Mark Twain. He arrives in San Francisco. He knows that's where Twain's career began. And he travels east just as Mark Twain traveled east. He makes another very important literary pilgrimage to Longfellow's grave. Among living American writers, he is a close friend of Henry Adams. They both share an interest in the growth of the American empire. Another writer at the time, though he would become much more than that later, is Theodore Roosevelt. And Kipling and Roosevelt hit it off immediately. They meet in Washington. They go to the Washington Zoo together. And they just talk, 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 both of them just, you know, eager to communicate everything on their minds. And and Teddy Roosevelt wants to show Kipling all the grizzly bears. And Kipling says, I'm really only interested in the beavers. You know, very, very different idea of the animals that they admire. He is very interested in women writers. I mentioned Louisa May Alcott. He also meets Willa Cather, who was extremely interested in Kipling's writing. Sarah Orne Jewett. A lot of our great short story writers of the period Kipling is is trying to learn from. And I think he was hoping to write some sketches of American life and ended up amazingly writing the Jungle Book instead. (laughs) Did these American writers influence, however, his style? Absolutely. We mentioned Twain, right? Yeah. And, you know, Kipling's poem, If, I think is a kind of tribute to Emerson's self-reliance, which for Kipling was a kind of creed that he lived by. He always had a photograph of Emerson 
on his desk. His way of writing ballads owes a ton to Longfellow, and a couple of his stories that I write, write about in my book are really tributes, explicit tributes to Longfellow. I think his, I think American women remained something of a mystery to him, and he sort of learned what he could from Louisa May Alcott. He was fascinated by Little Women and felt that, you know, he had married into that kind of, of family. You really feel that he's looking as much to American writers as to British writers for clues to how to how to move forward in, in his own writing. I have to ask, what was life like in Brattleboro for him? Because, you know, when you think of Rudyard Kipling, you imagine him lounging in a hill station in colonial India, not hanging out in Brattleboro, Vermont. For him, the wildness was similar. I, I think the stories that he wrote about the, the expat community in Shimla and, and other hill stations in northern India have a kind of a, a sense that they're right on the edge of chaos, of, of the jungle. And Kipling really felt the same thing about Brattleboro. The way he writes about it, you know, a friend of his says Kipling is convinced that all Americans carry firearms wherever they go, rather rather prescient in a, really? in a way. And it was officially a dry state, but everybody drank on the sly. Kipling said the public drunkenness was just amazing. And it was a period of, of uh, economic decline in the 1890s. There had been a couple of very severe depressions. A lot of people were leaving the farms. It was a countryside in which a lot of men had left women in their wake to sort of go it alone. So Kipling, it was a little bit of a frontier outback as he regarded it. And I think it actually truly was. You get an interesting, similar feeling from a book like Robert Frost, North of Boston. Frost is another of those American writers who learned a lot from Kipling. And the sort of desolate life that Frost writes about in Vermont and New Hampshire that's kind of what Kipling was experiencing. Nonetheless, he did love to hang out at the local drugstore and regale the locals with stories of India and so on. So I think there were there were similarities to the, the good life in the hill station. Sorry, I only have time for one more question. What was Kipling's influence then on the country he ended up leaving in 1899? I think Kipling is one of the originators of what we have come to think of as naturalism, the idea that human life resembles animal life and especially ferocious animal life in many ways. A book like Tarzan owes everything to the Jungle Book and the story of Mowgli, though Kipling thought it was a pretty ignominious piece of copycat writing. And interestingly, Kipling is very big on the wolves, and he's very big on a native boy, and Burroughs is big on neither one. You know, he's got he's got a, an English aristocrat as his hero who just happens to be marooned in, in Africa and a bunch of apes who are treated horribly and natives who are treated horribly. But that idea of naturalism, we sometimes think that it came from Zola or from French writers mm-hmm. who Americans were somehow aware of, I'm pretty sure that Kipling was the dominant figure 
Jack London is another writer who would not have written at all if it weren't for Kipling. Would have been a totally different writer. A book like The Call of the Wild is very much in the Kipling jungle book vein. And and Jack London confessed that. He said, you know, I'm I'm partly Kipling's invention. So I think I think in that regard, Kipling is was really inescapable for a generation of American writers and not just male writers. You know, Willa Cather's story Coming Aphrodite has a character who's just directly taken from a Kipling novel called The Light That Failed. And Cather worshipped Kipling. You know, there are these unexpected connections that once you start exploring Kipling's influence, it's, it's hard to see where it ends. He was such an enormous presence for American writers in the 1890s. All right. Well, there you have the untold story of your subtitle. The book, again, is called If, The Untold Story of Kipling's American Years by Christopher Benvie. Chris, thanks so much for being here. A great pleasure. Thank you. This is John Williams, and I'm joined by The Times' staff book critics, Dwight Garner, Jennifer Salai, and Parl Sagel, to talk about what they've reviewed recently. Hey, team. Hello, Tom. Tom. Hi, Tom. Parl, let's start with you just for sheer tonnage. <laughs> what did <laughs> I mean? <laughs> sheer masochism. Did you really carry this massive book all around All Italy? around, well, Rome. I finished it in Rome. But yeah, so I reviewed The Catholic School by Eduardo Albinati, which won the Strega Prize, Italy's top honor. And it's about uh, 1,200 pages. I don't know. You kind of lose count after the 900 mark. <laughs> it is immense. And it is a mix of fact and fiction. And Albinati, what he's trying to do is explain a murder in the 70s, right? So these three men kidnapped two women and killing one, torturing both of them. And they were schoolmates of Albinati's. And so what he wants to do is understand this crime and to frame this crime as not an aberration, but as a logical fulfillment of masculinity is created in Italy by the school that he went to, by religion, by the cult of the family. And I mean, the way it's written is there are moments of what we understand as true crime, but most of it is just, it's just, rants and arias and tirades and he just sort of is in this froth trying to see like who made me who made them who made us and so it's not like portraits of the classmates and narrative about like what they're if, like a sort of Ferrante kind John, of thing. If only. If only. <laughs> no, there was very little of that. It's much more him sitting psychologically with what happened and and also his own life. He spent most of his life in male-only spaces. You know, he did a stint in the army. He went to that the boys' school, the Catholic school that he writes about. And for 25 years, he's been teaching in a prison. So he knows a lot about the world of men together. And he has a lot to say about masculinity. He has a lot to say about everything. And there are some original insights that he has to make based on his own life and observations, but much of it is, you know, philosophy and, you know, there's some stuff about childhood development, there's some Freud, there's some Lacan, there's some Marty Lang. And, you know, as I was reading it, I, I felt like, and I think I wrote about this in my review, that what ends up happening is instead of there being some sort of critical distance about what he's writing about, he really tries to channel how these killers felt and how misogynists feel about women and women's bodies and about violence and about their bonds with other men. But and I think you made the point in the review that it, he does it in a way that seems very fatalistic. Abs- fatalistic. Like this can't change. It cannot change. But more than that, he really merges with it. He doesn't really criticize it. He wants to sort of describe it in all of its sort of gaudy horror. But for the reader, you end up reading this thing being like, I know this. 
I know that. Like, we all know this. Like, this is, it's his, the book is identical in certain ways to statements by incels. It's identical to hmm. so many statements that you've ever read by any mass killer. And they all leave long statements yeah. that they say the exact, exact same thing. So to read this, you're like, yes, I understand this. But where is the critique? Where is the sort of letting in some air and reason? You know, where's some sort of, because these are arguments that are easy to perforate, you know, easy to sort of dislodge. But he's not interested in that. I think I have a couple of other thick books coming up this fall. I like I, big books, John. Well, I, I remember, cannot lie. <laughs> I remember when you did the Uwe Johnson book, Anniversaries. I like that experience. I like spending... Even longer than this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was that was really, truly punishing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go to Jen now because we're going to move sort of in, I think, in order toward raviness. I think Dwight had the, the most positive review this week. Jen, you wrote recently about a book called Cokeland. Yes. So it's by a journalist named Christopher Leonard. And as the title suggests, it's about Coke Industries, which has been written about a lot, especially the last probably six or seven years. I mean, probably most famously by Jane Mayer in Dark Money and in The New Yorker, as well as by Daniel Shulman, whose book Sons of Wichita is really about the family story of the Cokes. And so this book is more focused on the business itself. What is the business? So the business is, well, at this point, it actually encompasses a lot more than it used to. But originally, you know, it was really an oil company and a fossil fuel company. And it still does that. It's branched into other related industries. So paper is another big thing. Agriculture is another big thing. And it is one of the biggest privately owned companies in the world. So in terms of transparency, there's actually not a lot of information that's readily available in regard to actually profits, revenues, you know, what exactly it does with its money. And so Leonard talks to a lot of people, gets documents, searches the records, and he shows how a company that, you know, in the late 60s, which is when Charles Koch, who is currently still the chief executive, when he took over when his father died, how a company that was sort of a, you know, a profitable mid-level company became what it is today, which is essentially like an energy behemoth. And it's made politics its business. And it's made politics its business, although very secretively. And I think that that was something that Jane Mayer really exposed and and parsed in her book Dark, Dark Money. But for the most part, what Charles Koch and his brother David Koch, and there are two other brothers, and that's that's a whole story that, you know, could take up another book. But what Charles Koch has, has really done is he sort of realized that being secretive, not just in terms of the business, but in terms of their political activities, could be very useful to his agenda. You call this book A Corporate History Lucidly Told. Mm-hmm. And does he focus less on the politics? Did he find out less about the politics? He he has some stuff on the politics. I mean, he does want to show how, you know, the, the thread that he really is interested in is how the political agenda that Charles Koch wanted to promote really dovetailed very nicely with the corporate agenda of the company. And so he looks at the ways in which what the Cokes funded, how that helped the business or how that helped sort of create a climate of opinion among conservatives, at least, that would be very open and receptive to what the business was doing. And the biggest one, I guess, is climate change and the issue of climate change denial, because this was a company, this is a company as an energy company that has not really invested in renewables. It's it's really focused on fossil fuels. So They made a point of saying that 
Trump, I think, was the one candidate they oh, weren't yeah. going to endorse. Yeah, I think in twenty sixteen. Uh, I think that Charles Koch's formulation was that he compared the choice between a Trump presidency and a Hillary Clinton presidency as a choice between cancer and a heart attack. So for him, I mean, Trump was not somebody that he wanted to see elected, I think primarily because what the platform that Trump was running on, which was protectionist tariffs, health care, that kind of thing was something that was anathema to what Koch wanted. But what he found, I think, when Trump became president was that Trump was a president that was willing to, quote unquote, work with the Republicans in the sense that Trump was totally unprepared. And so that was sort of a big hole that Koch and, you know, the organizations that he funded could really step into. And they had, you know, a list of judicial appointments that were very useful for Trump, which we're seeing right now. And so what Leonard argues is that Koch has figured out a way to treat Trump as a natural disaster. So, (laughs) you know, something that he could prepare for and then find a way to profit from. Dwight, you this week reviewed uh, a very different kind of book, a novel. The yeah. novel of the year. According well, to you know, yeah. I said in terms of its ability to throw dart after dart after dart, I'm quoting myself, into your media-weary soul and heart. It's the novel of the year. Nell Zink, this is her fourth or fifth novel. She's been around. She's a known quantity. She's always been smart, clever, very witty. She's really upped her game in her, her new novel, which is called Doxology. It's a more conventional novel in some ways. It follows two generations of one family, the first generation or two. You know, you could put a label on them and call them 80s hipsters, I think. They're young people who moved to New York City in the late 80s and they're in the early 90s. They're trying to make lives for themselves and they, they play in bands. And Nilzink is very smart on the music. She clearly knows a lot about music. And then the story slowly becomes about their daughter, Flora, who ends up growing up with her grandparents for complicated reasons in Washington, D.C. after 9-11. And it becomes Flora's novel. And Flora, among other things, goes to work for the Jill Stein campaign during the last election. So you can imagine the the possibilities for commentary about Trump in the world. And Nelson exploits those. There's a great quote from, I think his name is Gilberto Gilb, the, the novelist. He says his favorite ethnic group is smart. And Nell Zink is just so goddamn smart in this novel that it's just crazy. Everything she brings up to talk about, she says one of the best things you've ever read about whatever that thing is. And I was just line after line after line just knocked me out. And people who know what I like know that that's part of what I come to fiction for. I mean, there are all kinds of novels out there. I like stories, too, that are slow and unfold and are narrative driven. But Nell Zink just has the sharpest knife in town right now for me. And I I was just kind of blown away by it. The second half loses a bit of its momentum. The Flora stories don't quite have the same bite that the earlier half has. But what Zink has in this novel that our earlier novels lacked is this sort of silent assessment of life that goes on below the text. You feel a deeper sense here. She's not just rocking her pinball machine the way she's done in previous novels. There's, there's some real emotional meat here. More about sort of the political moment in our country? Political moment. She has a lot to say about all sorts of things, about politics. I mean, this novel takes you through the early days of the Gulf War, beautiful writing about 9-11. The family, the two 80s hipsters, to go back to the slogan term for them, live right downtown. And, and, and the air is filled with asbestos and fear when they let their daughter go live in D.C. And she writes beautifully about 9-11. And then, you know, just follows everything, the uh, 2000 election, which is before that, obviously. As I say in my review, the the politics in Zink's new novel, Doxology, they kind of lick up like flames in the background the way they do in John Updike's rabbit novels. And there's always this sense that somehow like the TV news is on and, and characters are bouncing their perceptions of their daily lives off of this stuff that's happening coming through the media. Hmm. Anyway, I, I just clearly really thought it was great. Yeah, very high praise. And yeah. the review is great. As are all the rest. So go to nytimes.com slash books and read all of our critics every week. Guys, thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks, John. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.